Well, hello. We can start now. My daughter made it. Yes. So we're going to cram 102 years of life into 20 minutes. And so we have been working on this and speed reading for a week now. And so listen well, because it's going to go. We're just I can speed read. I don't know if I can speed talk. (laughs) Well, thanks for having us. Uh, I'm Robbie Vadreen, as Mandy said. And this is my wife and my partner in this crazy life, Terry. Terry and I will celebrate 31 years of being married this August. Yes. We have six kids, five still here with us, and one that we lost in miscarriage. We've added three sons-in-law and four grandchildren to the mix, and I'm certain that the grandkid production program is just getting started. And I have a wedding picture somewhere up there, and we haven't changed much, so there you go. We're so cute. Your hair is still big. Ah, big hair. Um, so Terry and I, we've served here at Reengage since the inception of the ministry here at Watermark. Uh, from the very first group, we have been overwhelmed at how God uses stories to transform lives, how he uses his word to open eyes and hearts. And tonight, we want to share our story and how God has done that with us. So I was raised in a stable home. My recollection of growing up was of a normal home. It wasn't until I was married that I realized that normal is not what I thought it was. I think I used normal as a security blanket to calm anxiety at the vast variety and differences of experiences that are out there. And from Terry's point of view, uh, there was nothing ordinary about our house. I grew up in a Christian home. My early childhood experiences with God and, and church were very structured and impersonal. My experience with God and faith focused on accomplishment and duty, and that carried over into family life. My exposure to the gospel, grace, and scripture came predominantly from my mom and her love of scripture and biblical reasoning, more than what I experienced or heard at church. My dad was a rock. He was consistent, and I never once thought that the family was not at the top of his priority list. When I was 10, my parents had a great awakening and a discovery of Jesus in a personal way that was the beginning of a serious change that marked a devotion that would forever change the way I viewed God and led to my own conversion from a lifeless external religious experience to a personal relationship and zeal for God through faith in Christ. My home was happy, and it was robust for the most part. Even after our family's newfound devotion, we were very much a mix of dysfunctions, but we were loving. I am the third child of four, and the dynamic in our house growing up was a steady dose of lively debate, arguing, and and a lot of commotion. This was part of everyday life. Our family debated vigorously, and there was little room for a weak disposition. We would argue over the color of mayonnaise, or if Bermuda or St. Augustine grass is better for the Texas heat. Important stuff. We actually did argue about important stuff, too. So if you were going to survive in my home, you better be quick on your feet. This was a blessing and a curse. The blessing was that you had to pay attention and articulate quickly. Skills that are worth having. The curse was often that there were hurt feelings and a lot of fence mending. As time has gone on and God has worked in all of our lives, we are closer and more engaged with each other. And even though miles separate several of us, I love my family of origin immensely. And they are a huge part of our lives. Worse than all, I love them dearly. And my mom, who had surgery yesterday, is right there. And my dad. It's crazy. So She came for the surgery, not for this. But hey, we'll take her. And they're here from Colorado. Yeah. So an area of my childhood home that impacted our marriage uh, was the way that money was handled. It was simply that there was never enough and always enough. 
We lack for nothing until we lack for something, but there was always seemed to be enough to meet our needs. Money was always an emotional subject, not a rational, pragmatic topic where wisdom and knowledge were transferred to me. We were not extravagant, just average middle class. By the time I entered into marriage, I viewed money with extreme optimism and an insatiable material appetite. My childhood was much different than Robbie's. I did grow up in a Christian home, but my parents divorced when I was just four. My mother was very careful never to speak negatively about my dad, allowing my younger brother and I to enjoy our time with dad without bitterness or resentment. Even with cross-country moves and school changes, there was a source of stability based in religious practice. Scripture memory and church attendance were mandatory in our family, and I jumped in wholeheartedly. As Awana programs became, became available, we also participated in those, and my naturally competitive nature flourished in this environment, and I devoured scripture since there were contests on every side, side for reciting it. I am grateful that even now I can frequently grasp those long-ago learned verses. My father was not a regular provider during my childhood, and my mother did her best to make ends meet for our family, but I was called upon at just 12 years old to begin working outside the home to help as I was able. There was never extra. We often were without heat or electricity for days at a time, but mom cheerfully struggled through without complaining or ever admitting the deficit to anyone, and we managed. Because of her necessary frugality, I learned to be very careful with money and struggled in marriage over control in financial matters. I counted every penny and found it difficult to spend on anything that wasn't absolutely essential. Not long after I met Robbie, he began to be a regular in our home. My mom enjoyed cooking for him and many of his friends from college. They enjoyed getting away from the dorm, and they would show up if I was away at work. It didn't matter. Um, discussions over religion and politics, social situations, or any other topic began to be more and more frequent, something I'd never been witness to in our home. We were conflict avoiders. We followed the rule, no politics, religion, or relationships will be talked about, and if something is wrong, it shall be fixed with sleep. <laughs> I, <laughs> I enjoyed him being around and began to fall for him hard as we became friends. That first summer after his freshman year when he returned to Dallas made me realize just how important he had become to me, and I missed him like crazy. When he returned that fall to Michigan and Indiana, uh, we began to date and have not turned back. Our first three years of marriage is a blur. We were married in August of 91, and we were pregnant with twins by the end of the year. We were debt-free, and I was finishing up college, and Terry was my sugar mama. I played varsity basketball and was carrying a full load at school, so Terry was the breadwinner. When she was put on bed rest with the twins, my living my best life ever ended, and off to work I went. The twins came on September 16, 1992. Fast forward 20 months, and we had twins and a newborn. Having, it, having twins at age 20 wasn't exactly what I'd planned, but I'm so grateful that God was in control. I have enjoyed being mom thoroughly and wouldn't have traded a moment. One baby changes your life, so two wasn't much different. It was number three, just 20 months later, that wore me out. We added two more kids, one at a time, and with a longer stretch between each, and I took on the blessed, adventurous challenge of homeschooling. It was in the throes of young children that God began to prune away some branches in my life that were sabotaging our relationship. With our very diverse upbringings, we had developed a communication style that was draining the life out of our marriage. 
I was an escalator and also aggressive. Terry's nature of withdrawing and avoiding conflict had created a situation where I stopped listening and she stopped offering. Terry, Terry was the valedictorian of her class, and she's definitely the most competent person between the two of us, yet I dominated every decision, big or small. By the time she had processed information and was ready to contribute, we were already down the road. Truth be told, I was an arrogant jerk. I was in my own head. I didn't even know how uncaring and distant I had become because we were in constant motion. I rarely made Terry the priority. We were all about divide and conquer, and I was conquering the person that was the most important to me. It was in the midst of being a drained mom and an overworked dad that my habit of squelching her input had come to into focus. Even after I had recognized my failure and my sin, it took me a long time to change the habit. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And I was that guy. It was hard work and prayer and the pressure of men in my life that yielded real change in me. This is the first time I lived out what dying to self looks like. As Robbie began to patiently listen to me and value my opinion, it shed a huge light on my martyr syndrome and isolation. I had been very content burrowing into my duties at home and stewing in self-pity. Rather than continuing to fling sarcastic barbs during conflict in order to heighten his anger and make all issues about his sin rather than ever looking at myself, the Lord revealed my part in our communication struggles, and I was forced to admit that I was wrong. Just don't say it very loud. <laughs> After many years, oh, and we're also very competitive. I could tell you a story about early much days. much more competitive. Yeah, it's not on here, so I'm not going to tell. <laughs> After many years, I still find dying to myself to be very difficult. I know that if re-engage existed in our early years of marriage, we would have made so much more progress and in a shorter amount of time. God is still good. And with the onset of a successful career, it was a rapid transition to Terry staying at home. Our financial situation had changed, and without a strategy, my optimistic spending took over. I became comfortable with being a mom in this busy metroplex. My Midwestern homegrown canned food and frugality had been replaced with the ease of Chick-fil-A on the way to dance classes or sports practices, date nights and babysitters, and aimless trips to Target. We started down the path of consumerism and began the dive into our hole of debt without any sound wisdom to hold us in check at that time. My reservations about spending and aversion to debt began to diminish in the joy of purchasing like I'd never experienced before in my life. Our income did not grow at the same pace as our appetite. In the spring of 2008, the economy had begun to soften. Myself and another guy in my community group were complaining about the state of our finances, so the whole community dove in and bared all financially speaking. Seeing the reality of my situation was hard to look at in spreadsheet form. As a result of the economic apocalypse and a huge helping of foolishness and bad leadership, we found ourselves in over $100,000 of debt plus a mortgage. We also lost over a year's salary in commissions that died with the economy. It mixed in a lawsuit and we were in bad shape. The lesson of this time is that although it was hard because of outside pressure beyond our control, are not being obedient and attentive to God's word cause even greater pain. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Psalms 37.21, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. We knew these things, but we thought ourselves wiser. We were fools, and now we were slaves. Wisdom was lacking in our over-optimistic view of our ability to provide. 
I know that I had begun to rely on us, on my abilities as a financial planner and Robbie's ability to sell our way out of the hole rather than following the wisdom that God had so clearly set before us. My joy was in possessions rather than in my God. Looking back, I praise God that even in the midst of financial chaos, Robbie, Robbie and I remained teammates and never played the blame game. We both knew we had dug this hole together. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It was as we were pulling out of financial collapse and accepting God's discipline for our foolishness and pride that we began facilitating re-engage for the first time. What a blessing to arm ourselves with tools that we didn't even, didn't even realize we were lacking. A lot has happened since the financial collapse of 08 and 09. We find ourselves today talking to you all and can authentically say we are more in love, more skilled as a couple, and enjoy each other more and more. This didn't happen because we're brilliant. There are two significant reasons. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> there are two significant reasons we perceive ourselves this way. Re-engage in community. Terry and I have been leading, or we're leading our 12th group right now. So we've been doing this for almost 15 years. For almost half of our married life, re-engage has been a deep part of our relationship. Each time we lead is a season of sharpening off dullness for us. We suffer with the suffering and reminding ourselves that the problem with our marriage is more to do with ourselves and not our spouse. Our community group has also been crucial to illuminating our blind spots. These friends have been courageous and committed. We don't deserve friends like this, but we will take them and we'll keep them. We love to love these folks. These two elements of our life, re-engage and proactive biblical community, has pushed us into God's word. If there's anything good in us, it's because of him. It is God's work in us that is producing fruit. We're not passive, but we are humbled and grateful for his work. We are far from perfect, and I'd like to demonstrate how re-engage has impacted typical situations that would undermine our relationships. It was late in 2020, and Terry and I had planned a busy Saturday that involved brunch and a few stops. One of those stops was to, to get bottled water. It is our habit to fill eight five-gallon bottles every month. Uh, and we arrived at the water store. There, was, there were no parking spaces that were close, and so I parked a little bit away. While I was filling bottles, Terry was in the car, and so I texted her to move the car because a place a little bit closer had freed up, but she didn't reply, so I called, no answer. I was in there slaving away, and she was probably on her phone playing a game, at least I thought. So in my selfish delusion, I just became angry and consumed with my stupid plight. It was probably a fair thing because I do play games on my phone. While he was in the store, however... You kind of said fair, and it sounded like an affair, and I was wondering you if you were confessing. No. No, 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 no. All right, keep going. While he was in the store, I had realized I forgot to care for a neighbor's pets while they were away. I had missed the morning let out and feeding, so I was on the phone trying to get a teenager to wake up and get him down there to, um, to let them out. So he went down. They had not made it without a disaster, and the family was coming back that afternoon. I had failed in a responsibility, not something I'm cool with, and I was crushed. When I got done, I marched to the car, backed that sucker up closer to the spot uh, where the door was. I loaded up the water, and I decided right then and there that I would never talk to her again, ever. <laughs> that, and I, think, I thought that would teach her. I sensed his tension, and I was still frustrated, so I asked him what his deal was. He lashed out and let me know how uncaring and rude and whatever else I was. 
He was letting me have it with both barrels, and I responded in kind. My silent treatment was obviously short-lived. Uh, <laughs> while all this was happening, I was just getting more and more heated. We reached a stop sign, and with great maturity and a lot of wisdom, a lot of things I learned to re-engage, threw the car in park, and off I went. I was walking at that point. <laughs> I caught up with him and stick with me. so just... very gently coaxed him in the car. <clears throat> As we drove in silence after I screamed at him to stop talking to me, the context of the entire week prior came into focus, and we realized we were at an emotional deficit. You see, our daughter had been sick and was in the hospital with an undiagnosed condition that we thought was involving her heart. We both were anxious and worried about her. We were... I'm going to cry. We were set to get her that afternoon as she was being discharged. In the moment of realizing that the stupid self-centeredness of the water ritual and the pet fiasco, we were really at our emotional breaking point. This what time... I wasn't supposed to do that. No, you weren't supposed to. We practiced. <laughs> this type of incident would usually take all day and into the next day to recover from. But because of what we had practiced, what we had learned at Reengage, we had internalized some of those things. We desired to do conflict better, to do it right. This incident was resolved instantly. We both asked for forgiveness. We focused on our daughter, and that was it. No more th hurtful thoughts and words, no need to declare a winner. We were really at peace. Okay. Scripture states, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The transition of raising kids to launching them into adulthood was a hard transition for us. Our poor twins, they got the raw end of the deal. Rookie parents who had no clue how to successfully let go. We did not do this well, and we all suffered. It has been 12 years since our first kiddo graduated from high school. We can enthusiastically say that we love being the parents of adult kids more than any other stage. You'll get there, I promise. We still grieve poor decisions, but we are no longer trying to parent, as in control. We strive to be honest, available, and committed, but we trust them. This is where community comes in. We are struggling right now with our youngest. He will be 20 in just a few days and is transitioning into adulthood in ways that we grieve. We, ha we have had to make hard decisions, and, and our tendency is really to create a soft landing to enable and to not let him feel the full consequence of his actions. And so the decisions that we've made are difficult, and it's hard to resist not going back to being soft. We are working through this with community. They know our stuff. They have let us vent, and they are counseling us, praying with us, and, and correcting us. We are not alone. This is not easy, but it is an excellent way. We do not do marriage alone, and we don't do parenting alone. While we overthink and get anxious about our son, it is God through community that helps us to not worry, to see the best, and not mourn deaths that haven't occurred yet. <laughs> we are better because of these dear friends. We are better because all the, all the couples that we've experienced with and re-engaged, a lot of those people are, are here tonight, and so there's just a, we are. There are a lot of you here, and thank you. <laughs> We're just surrounded by people who have invested in us and allowed us to invest in them. Parenting adults is much different than parenting children. This looks more like being invited in to disciple or discuss their struggles, worries, concerns, fears, and it's an absolute joy. Our relationships have flourished even as we struggle with our youngest. 
Each of our kids have launched, and we now enjoy every moment we get to spend. Every text, every surprise coffee date, every discussion about what they're reading for fun or wrestling with in God's Word. We are blessed beyond belief in loving them, and they have, turned, they have in turn loved us. This past year, we married off two daughters. We have a picture yeah, we have of a them. Few, few pictures there. In, in, well, hold on. Oh, go, oh, back, go, go, back, back, go back. Go back. Go back. Go back. That, that, that we are to, taking donations. Yes. Yeah, I okay. wanted to warn you so you could get your cell phones out. This is, this is the two weddings we had last year um, in May and November, and they're just super sweet. We love them. Um, so there's so the important yeah, part. Now, now donations are accepted. We're just kid- <laughs> that w- we're kidding. We're kidding. Kind of. Are we kidding? <laughs> That's real. That's real. <laughs> uh, James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Today, I can honestly say we are more content. Each day is a gift, and we open it with joy. God's provision is so much more satisfying than what we dreamt up on our own. Thank you so much for listening to us. This has been great.